Life is fragile, handle with prayer. James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Father, we thank you so much for making the Christian life possible. You've made redemption possible through faith in the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And Romans 5 reminds us that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, We are able to have peace with you and not only peace, but reconciliation with you and access into your presence. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Since we have such a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, let us boldly come before the throne of grace. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have each and every day to pour out our hearts before you. To cast all of our anxieties upon you, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, knowing that you care for us. Father, we know that the ups and downs of life are great and varied. And indeed, life is fragile. We need to be men and women of prayer. God help us to understand that from the message this morning and understanding it, that it would find application in our lives. Because the Bible says, let us be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving ourselves. God, we pray for our needs. We pray for the needs of those around us. We're mindful that many in here this morning are hurting They need comfort. They need counsel. God, we pray for the families of those servicemen and women that we learned yesterday died in that helicopter crash, serving and protecting their country. We pray that they were indeed prepared to meet you. We pray for their families. Father, we pray for those in the congregation here and around the world who are experiencing good things in life, that they would not forget that you're the source of those. Lord, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From last week, we saw that in light of the Lord's imminent return, we're to wise up, we're to look up, And we're to shut up. That is, we're not to complain and grumble against one another. That last point, of course, deals with how we use language. And I want to use that last point from last week as a bridge between that message and this message today. We're not to misuse language by grumbling. And he went on to add that... We're to let our yes be yes and our no, no. In other words, if we're always honest people, we're not going to have to go around using unnecessary vows to try to convince everybody that we're being truthful and honest with them. And in today's culture, it would also apply to say that we're not to go around using profanity when we get into difficult situations. 
Speech is such a marvelous gift from God. With it, we're able to communicate with our loved ones and our friends. If it's taken away, it's tragic. I think of Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. How God came down and confused their language and they were not able to communicate with one another. Folks, there's so many examples of how we can use words in a negative way. But today I want to flip that coin over and not talk about how we use language in a negative way, but talk about how we can use language in a positive way. And so added to those points last week that we need to wise up, look up, and shut up, let's add today's point that we need to get prayed up. In li- again, in light of the Lord's imminent return, we need to get ready and we need to get prayed up. What we're going to see is that in life, we're going to go, all of us are going to go through many experiences, through all the ups and downs of life. Over all the speed bumps of life, we're to commit our ways to God through prayer. I want you to notice three things with me this morning. First of all, I want you to see that Christians are to pray when they suffer. Christians are to pray when they suffer. He says there in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now the word for suffering here should not be confused with the word for sick. In verse 14, the word suffering here simply refers to hardships and distresses. If you're reading from the NIV, the NIV translates this word trouble. Is anybody going through trouble in their life? Is anybody suffering? Now folks, we need to be reminded of the fact that as James wrote his epistle here, he's writing to Jewish believers who were scattered, who lost their homes, some of them lost their businesses in the persecution that began in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. In James 1.1, he writes to to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed abroad. These are people who knew suffering. And because they knew suffering, they knew trials and they knew tribulation. In James 1, 2, he says, My brethren, consider it all joy whenever you encounter trials of various sorts. Knowing that God is wanting to develop patience and character in your life through those trials. In chapter 5, he returned to this theme of hardships and trouble. It would be easy for them to collapse under the strain. Certainly it would be easy for them to grumble and complain. But Paul exhorts them instead to pray. For in prayer, what are we doing ladies and gentlemen? We're calling upon God's strength and power. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul reminds us that we serve a God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. That's the God that we're calling upon when we suffer. 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter said we're to cast all of our care upon God because He cares for us. And the tense of the verb is very significant here. James says he must pray. It's the present tense. In other words, he is to keep on praying. He's to keep on pouring his burdens and his heart out before God. When life is difficult, when believers are weak in faith or weary with opposition or crushed by affliction, they must continually plead with God to comfort and and strengthen them. Folks, this is such a basic spiritual truth, but it is too often forgotten. In his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, Bill Hybel says, Prayer is an unnatural activity. From birth we've been learning the rules of self-reliance as we strain and struggle to achieve self-sufficiency. Prayer flies in the face of those deep-seated values. It is an assault on human autonomy, an indictment of independent living. To people in the fast lane determined to make it on their own, prayer is an embarrassing interruption. 
Prayer is alien to our human nature. And he goes on to write, It is hard for God to release His power in your life when you put your hands in your pockets and say, I can handle this one on my own. If you do that, don't be surprised if one day you get the nagging feeling that the tide tide of the battle has shifted against you and that you're fairly powerless to do anything about it. Prayerless people cut themselves off from God's prevailing power and the frequent result is the familiar feeling of being overwhelmed, overrun, beaten down, pushed around and defeated. Surprising numbers of people are willing to settle for lives like that. He concludes by saying, don't be one of them. As Chuck Swindoll points out, he says, this doesn't mean that God immediately ends the affliction. He never promises to bring instant relief. But He does promise to provide patience and perseverance. Prayer doesn't express Faith in God to deliver us from trials, but through trials. And so what do Christians need to do when we find ourselves in hardships? When we find ourselves weighed down by the burdens and and trials of life, James says we must go to our knees in prayer. Secondly, I want you to see here that he says Christians are to pray when they rejoice. Again in verse 13, he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And so James covers the gamut of emotions here. On the one hand, God's people suffer in this world, but suffering is not our constant situation. Thankfully, much of life is good. The Bible says God even makes His sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. In other words, we all enjoy the common grace of God. We got up this morning and guess what? The sun came up, did it not? The rain clouds finally break and the sky clears up again and there's sunshine. The fields produce their harvest. Much of life is good. Thankfully, not all of life is a job loss or a home loss or a sick loved one or a bankruptcy settlement. While the saints of God around the globe certainly suffer, some more than others, most are able to go about their lives and should find themselves busy about their Heavenly Father's business. But folks, what do we oftentimes do when life is good? What happens when everything's going our way and the decisions we're making are the right decisions? Most oftentimes we grow complacent, don't we? And we forget God. You know who I think of? I think of the children of Israel in the book of Judges. There they would be clicking along. Life would be good. And and all of a sudden they would suffer oppression and hardship. And they would cry out to God. And as they cried out to God, God would bring them a deliverer. And set them free again. And then life in Israel would once again be good. And so they would click along for years in that goodness. And they would grow cold and complacent in their relationship with God. Until that cycle started all over again. We're not to forget God when life is good. That seems to be one of the biggest indictments of the church today. It's just so easy to coast in life and and forget about God when life is good. I think of the the man on the church roll, speaking hypothetically, that, that nobody ever sees him in Sunday school, nobody ever sees him in church, and then life crashes down around him, and all of a sudden he's here in church, and, and that's, that's good, I'm not criticizing that at all, but where has he been previous to that? And all of a sudden he's in church and he's crying out the, uh, at the altar before God and shedding tears. God, where are you? Come and save me and deliver me. But for much of the rest of his life, he's just forgotten God and gone about his merry way. James says, folks, we're not to do that. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. We might say that praises are prayers that have been turned into song. Listen to what William Barclay says about this. He says, always the church has been a singing church. When Pliny, governor of uh, Bithynia, wrote to Trajan, the Roman emperor in A.D. 111... 
To tell him of this new sect of Christians, he said that his information was that they are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it is light when they sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God. In the Orthodox Jewish synagogue since the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, there has been no music for when they worship, they remember a tragedy. But for the Christian church from the beginning until now, there has been the music of praise for the Christian remembers an infinite love and enjoys a present glory. Folks, there is so much to be grateful for in life. Amen? I think of what Paul says over in Ephesians 1. Over in Ephesians 1, listen as I, as I read these verses beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. And, and Paul just sort of catalogs some reasons of why we need to go before God in, in cheerful singing and, and in prayers of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the promise of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. You see how Paul is just stacking up phrase upon phrase of God's activity in the believer's life? To where when we're going through life and, and life uh, seems to be bad, we go to God in prayer and, and we ask Him to help us and give us strength. And when life is good, we're to remember, where does all this goodness come from? It comes from God. Paul goes on to say in verse 11 there, In Him we have uh, obtained an inheritance. He's speaking of that future glory that we have in heaven with Christ. Amen? And you know, Peter in 1 Peter says, Nothing can interfere with that inheritance. It won't fade one bit. And he says in the meantime too, God is working in us, preserving us, until we can receive that inheritance. And so God is working from both angles in the believer's life. Paul says in verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Folks, when you don't think you have anything to be thankful for in life, you ought to turn to Ephesians 1 and read again everything Paul is saying that God has done in our lives. And so James is saying we need to remember all this and when life is good, don't just coast along. And don't start thinking I'm responsible for all this good in my life. Look at all this good that's come by my, my power and by my wisdom and by my might and by my, my money. Look at how good I am. No, no, no. Uh, James says we need to remember that all of this is the manifold blessing of God and we need to give God credit. Thirdly, Christians are to pray when they're sick. We're going to spend most of our time here this morning. Christians are to pray when they're sick. He says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. James says, is any among you sick? What's implied in, in, in the verses that follow is that this is a serious illness. 
After all, according to verse 15, this is somebody who is down because he's raised up supposedly off of his sickbed. And so what's being implied here is a serious illness that puts one down out of commission for a while. Now he's not saying we don't pray over small issues in life. We pray over those too. He's just saying this this isn't just simply a small issue he's talking about. It's more serious. Some commentators remind us that the word for sickness here is broad enough to include somebody who is extremely beat down spiritually because of all the suffering that, that he's enduring. And so they remind us that while James may have had physical conditions mainly in in view, according to the word sick here as it's used in other places in the New Testament, it can also include those who are weak in faith or weak in conscience. And so we need to also include in verse 14 the person who's right on the verge of growing overly discouraged spiritually speaking. They're at a breaking point in their life. And so they too, just like the person who is physically ill, desperately needs the intervention and intercession of his Christian brothers and sisters. But folks, I want you to notice the order here. There is the sickness, whether spiritual or physical. What is such a person to do? Well, James says, let him call for the elders of the church. What happens so often? What happens so often is that the sick person or the sick person's family puts the responsibility for initiating the contact Upon the church. But what does the Bible do here? The Bible reverses that. It says that the sick person, or we could also assume their family if they're too ill to call, uh, call themselves. The, so either the sick person or their family calls for the elders of the church. Now folks, this is not a small tidbit of trivia that I'm trying to get sidetracked on here. How many times... Over the course of your Christian life in church, have you heard of somebody offended because their church family did not check on them? I've known of cases where the sick rely on the grapevine to get news out of their condition. I found that the grapevine usually only works in those cases when you don't want it to work. But somebody will tell their Sunday school class about their surgery. Assuming that whoever they tell in their Sunday school class is going to turn around and tell somebody else in the class. And then somebody else in the class is going to eventually get word to the teacher. And then they assume that the teacher is probably going to notify the deacon of that individual. And then they assume that the deacon of that individual will get around to calling the church office and notifying one of the pastors. Now what is the the normal outcome of all these assumptions being made? Usually it's a disappointed sick person or a disappointed family. There's inevitably a breakdown in communication somewhere. Now in more extreme cases, feelings can be hurt and the next thing you learn is the person who has recovered or their family is looking for another church home. But folks, where did the breakdown occur? It didn't occur with the church. It occurred with the sick person their family. I'll never forget the story of one of our leading North Carolina Baptist pastors. He's retired from the ministry now. I'm not embellishing this story, I'm not adding anything to it, and and, and I'm not relying on hearsay because he told me this story himself. He pastored a rather large congregation up in Durham, and and one time when he got to church one weekend, a, a member came up to him, a man came up to him and said, Pastor, I'm angry at you. He said, why are you angry with with me? Because my wife was in the hospital last week and had surgery and she was bad off and you never came to see her. He said, I didn't know she was in the hospital. 
Did you call anybody at church or did you call the church, uh, church office? No, I didn't, know, I didn't do that, Pastor. But I see you at the hospital all the time. And for the prayer sheet at, at church that you go over uh, every midweek service, you give updates on hospital visits. So, so I just assumed you'd find out. And he said, well, how would I find out? Well, pastor, they have that role. Back in the days before the privacy laws, they would have that stack of sheets up at the reception desk that you could look through and see where your church met, see where their room number was. They don't have that anymore, but this was back in the day when they did. He said, well, pastor, I just assumed you'd go through that, uh, that hospital role and, and, and find her name and go see her. And he said, sir, wait a minute. Let me, let me see if I'm understanding something correctly here. Every morning when I get up out of bed and, and get dressed and eat, breakfast and get in my car and drive down to the church office uh, I'm to go by Duke Medical Center and thousands and thousands of patients and I'm to get their admissions report and I'm to peruse through all these thousands of names on the chance that maybe one of our church members is in there and then I'm to get in my car and I'm to go over to Chapel Hill and do the same. Then I'm to get in my car and I'm going to go to Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem and I'm to do the same there. And then I'm to go to Raleigh and do the same there at all those hospitals and all those other hospitals in the area. Every day, that's what I'm supposed to do. Sir, wouldn't it just be easier if you would have called the church office and let us know that your wife was having surgery? Now to the man's credit, he said, Pastor, I'm sorry, you're exactly right. I'm expecting too much. James says, let the sick person, or again their family if they're incapacitated in some way, let them call for the elders of the church. Now who are the elders? The elders are the, the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the flock. And he says then, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now folks, I want you to notice that a private gathering is assumed here. In other words, James is not promoting some type of church service like some of these faith healer tent revivals where hundreds, maybe even thousands are gathered around and all the TV cameras are cut on and, and great theater is staged for the benefit of the world to see. No, that's not the case here at all. Instead, here are church leaders quietly gathered around the bedside. They pray, anointing the sick person with oil. Now, prayer is the main point here. Anointing comes along, alongside of prayer, modifies prayer in the verse here, but it's prayer that is the focus. In fact, verse 15 only mentions the prayer. So what is the anointing? Well, in the Bible, anointing seems to be two things. First, there is the ceremonial anointing in the case of somebody symbolically being consecrated and set aside for service like King David was anointed. The oil was a symbol for the Holy Spirit to touch his life and be present in his life and bless his life. Secondly, there was the more mundane or common anointing for medicinal reasons or hygienic purposes. We see that when the good Samaritan came along and he found that man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. What did he do? He poured wine in. That was the antiseptic. He poured wine into the man's wounds and then he anointed the man with oil. Uh, here again, oil soothed and protected the wounds. That seems to be the thought here even by the word, the particular word here that is used for anointing. Folks, what is not implied here is that something magical happens with the anointing with the oil. There is nothing in Scripture to support that. What do you see today? You can find them on the internet, though, all these so-called spiritual gurus. You know, they've got some kind of holy water or holy oil from, from uh, Israel. And for a certain amount of money, you can... You can order that oil and you know you can have anointing services with that oil that's brought in. There, that, that, like there's something magical about that oil. But again, there's, there's nothing here that suggests that. 
Oil was used both symbolically and medically. As one writer points out, given the nature of the oil in ancient times for medical purposes, James may simply be saying, take advantage of prayer and medicine. In other words, in today's culture, go to the hospital and get the medical help that you need and also call for your pastors and church leaders and get them praying. There shouldn't be any kind of conflict between medicine and prayer. I mean, if you have a toothache, what do you do? You go to the dentist, right? You get it treated. He gives you a shot. And the rest of the day, you go around talking like, how, 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 how y'all doing? Blah, 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 blah. You know, you talk like maybe you've gotten, gotten a hold of too much of that wine the Good Samaritan had. <laughs> but what do you do with that toothache? You go to the doctor. You, you get it treated. You get it taken care of. There really shouldn't be conflict between medicine and prayer. Who does the healing in either case? God does. How does God do it? God can do it miraculously. Make no mistake about that. God still sometimes heals supernaturally. How many times have you, I know I've heard this several times in my life. Maybe some of you old timers have heard it a lot more often. Somebody comes into prayer meeting and says, I got good news this week from the doctor. I had all these cancerous tumors all over my liver and they, they told me how serious it was. And I went back to the doctor and the doctor came in scratching his head and said, Ma'am or sir, I don't know how to explain this, but the scan now is... Showing up, there's, there's no tumors there. There's no spots. I don't have an answer for this. Who does something like that? God does. Can God still do that today? And does God still do things like that today? Yes. God heals. He heals supernaturally. Or God can use doctors and, and medicines. After all, who gives doctors their gifts and knowledge and calling? God does. They may not recognize that. But in the body of Christ, we should recognize where their gifts come from. And so God also heals through medicines and doctors. God did the healing, but He used the doctor or the medicines as the vehicle to bring it all about. I'll never forget a newspaper article I, I had a number of years ago. In fact, I used it one Wednesday night in prayer meeting. I wish I still had the article. It was in the Charlotte Observer and they were reporting on some big medical study somewhere up north. I believe it was in Pennsylvania. Some, some doctors and a university had done this major study. They, they, they took this big sampling of patients and they divided them in two. And for one group of patients, all they got was medical help from doctors. And the other group got the medical help from doctors and medicines, but they also got Christians praying for them. Now, if I remember correctly, neither group knew which, one they, which group they were in. And the results were astounding. They were surprised to find that, that almost without exception, the group uh, of patients who not only got the medical attention, but also were prayed for, by and large, that group healed up both quantitatively and qualitatively better than the other group did. That shouldn't surprise us as believers. And so go see your doctor and at the same time do what else? Get God's people praying. It's not an either or situation, it's a both and situation. Now Roman Catholics have used this passage to justify what they call the sacrament of extreme unction which is a ceremony intended to prepare the sick person for death. But folks, that's a clear misuse of this passage. James is not talking about preparing a person for death 
But instead doing all this so they'll do what? So they'll get well. Let me also say that this passage denies the charge of some faith healers today who say when somebody is not healed, they just didn't have enough faith. In fact, notice that James is not even talking about the faith of the the sick person, but he's talking in verse 15 about the faith of the elders. And even there, as Thomas Lee points out in his commentary on this verse, the prayer offered in faith simply refers to the fact that the elders have faith in God that God is able to heal if He so chooses. It's not some kind of demand upon divine sovereignty, but simply a recognition that if the person is to be healed, it is God who is well able to do it. It's that underlying conviction on the part of all those present at the prayer gathering that God God is more than able. Now folks, that brings up an interesting question. Why when we're praying for people, here is one person on our prayer list with cancer that God heals, and there is another person that God doesn't seem to heal. It may be the same group of people praying for both situations, maybe even on the same night. And it appears that God answers the prayer for one person but doesn't answer the prayer for the other person. In that case, did God hear one set of prayers but God didn't hear the other set of prayers? Is that the case? Take the following example. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India during the last part of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th, described the attempted healing of one of her treasured co-workers, a woman named Panamal, who came down with cancer. Another friend from Madras came and they held a service based on James 5. Elizabeth Elliot, you've heard that name, right? You've heard her on the radio. Elizabeth Elliot, Amy Carmichael's biographer, describes what happened. She says it was a solemn meeting around the sick bed. The women dressed as usual in the hand-loomed saris, but white ones for this occasion. They laid a palm branch across Panamal's bed as a sign of victory and accepted whatever answer God might give, certain that whether it was to be physical healing or not, he would give victory and peace. It sounds like a simple formula. It was an act of faith, but certainly accompanied by the anguish of doubt and desire which had to be brought again and again under the authority of the Master. From that very day, Panamal grew worse. The pain increased and her eyes grew dull as she lingered for days in misery until she reached her limit and her earthly warfare was accomplished. And she closed her eyes in death. Folks, I would submit to you that sometimes God gives what I call the ultimate healing. Why do we assume that going to heaven for a child of God is the worst option? Did Paul not say in 2 Corinthians 5 to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? And he went on to say, which by the way is far better. Did he not also say to the Philippians in his first imprisonment as he was writing to them, He he said, what I want is I want to go on and be with the Lord, which is far better. He says, but this go around, I'm convinced that for your sake, for the building up of the body of Christ, God is going to deliver me out of this imprisonment and I'm going to be around with you for a little bit longer. And by being around with you for a little bit longer, I'm going to be able to minister to you and help you grow in Christ. And that's exactly what happened in that case. Paul was delivered from prison. But what did he say initially? I want to go on and be with Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain. Why do we also assume that God has not answered our prayer 
uh, uh, unless the person remains with us. Folks, if that were the case, that God always has to heal, and that that is what James is saying here, wouldn't it stand to reason that nobody would ever have to die? And yet the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now Christ and His redemption has taken care of the sting of death and grave for the child of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If we're in Christ, guess what? We experience resurrection after death, right? But we still have to die. That's the curse that sin brought upon the world. Would it not also stand to reason that some of the greatest saints of God would have been healed? Here was Paul. He had this thorn in the flesh. Why did God give him that thorn in the flesh? To keep him humble and to keep him dependent upon God. You see, God had allowed the apostle Paul to get a glimpse of heaven. He talks about that in that chapter, how he was able to get that glimpse of heaven and he came back to earth and unlike people today who want to write books about their afterlife experiences, God said to Paul, you don't, don't even talk about, don't even speak about these things. And he gave to Paul a thorn in the flesh. And, and the word for thorn there is daggers. I mean, it was some kind of physical ailment. Some scholars assume it, it may have been poor, poor eyesight. We don't really know. But three times he asked God to take this sickness away and God didn't. And God told him instead, my grace is sufficient for you. And so what is our response to this passage to be? Our response as the body of Christ is that we're to follow, we're to do what it says, and then we're simply to leave the results to God. But now before we leave this thought altogether, let's continue a moment with James here. As some writers point out, there, there's the option but not the necessity here that sickness is connected to sin. Verse 15 says, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the fact that some members are sick and some of them have even died because of sin. At the same time, the Bible doesn't draw a connection every time between sin and sickness. In John 9, for instance, when some of the people were connecting the man born blind to sin, Jesus was quick to clarify, this blindness is not due to the man's sin, nor the sin of his parents, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so James leaves open the possibility that somebody's sin and sickness may be connected without saying that it has to be connected. And so he says that we're to examine our lives and confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. In other words, in those cases when there is a connection between sin and sickness, if a person wants physical healing, if they're sick because of either God's discipline or if it's a sin that naturally brings on an illness, like say drug abuse for instance, they need to deal with the sin that brought on either the illness or God's discipline. Don't expect the healing without dealing with the sin that is behind the healing in those cases. Folks, every person dealing with serious illness or with overwhelming discouragement and weakness ought to at least put the matter before God and at least ask God if God is trying to show them something. Again, it's not necessarily the case. But it's at least something a person ought to search out before God. Now here's where in the Roman Catholic tradition the practice of the confession booth comes from. 
While again that practice misses the point because certainly no human spiritual leader can absolve you of sin. Let me say, if done like James is saying here, there is merit in it. James is not talking about confessing your sin to a a human priest in some booth. But he is saying confess your sins to one another. There's a mutual accountability in the body of Christ. If there are particular things you struggle with, it'd be a good idea. If there were some accountability partners you had in the church, and these would be brothers or sisters that you could trust with their confidentiality, and you could go to them, and you could get them praying for you. Now folks, pastors don't do what I'm about to mention. We don't do this. But it would be perfectly reasonable if we did and if done in the right manner, in the right spirit, it shouldn't be offensive. What if when we went into a hospital room and we stood over somebody and had prayer with them, if the first thing we said to them is, by the way, before we read scripture with you and pray with you and encourage you, we just want to ask you, is your heart clean before God? Is your heart clean before God? Based on what James is saying here, that would, be a, that would be a good thing to consider. Now folks, I'm out of time. I wish I had time to develop more what James is saying here about Elijah. But for the sake of time, just realize that James has been talking about prayer and getting elders to pray for you. Somebody might be thinking, will that really accomplish anything? And by using the illustration of Elijah, James assures us that it will help. When you take people who have confessed their sins before God, they're spiritually clean, and then you have the elders praying for them, God is in that. God may not heal everybody in the congregation the way we want them healed, but we would no doubt witness God working in powerful and mighty ways. Somebody says, but we all have such feet of clay. Well, God really blessed this pattern. So enter Elijah. He says about Elijah that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was a sinner saved by grace. He was far from perfect. If you think Elijah was perfect, just go home and read the account of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings this afternoon. He was a man of like passions like us. But he was clean before God. And God said to him, Elijah, show yourself to Ahab and tell Ahab because of the sin that Ahab and Jezebel have brought into the land that I'm going to withhold rain from the earth. There's going to be a drought and there's going to be famine. And there was for three and a half years. And then God said to Elijah, Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab again because I'm going to bring rain. You're going to pray for it and I'm going to bring rain. And that's exactly what happened. That's how God used Elijah. What you see there is God using a mere man to accomplish mighty things. And how did God use this mere man? He used this mere man through prayer. So James is telling us we need to be men and women of prayer. God does great things in and through prayer. James is inviting you and me to take prayer very seriously. Would you do that this morning? Whatever suffering you might be going through in life, would you take it to God in prayer? Whatever good you enjoy in life, also take that to God in praise. He's the one responsible Start giving him the credit. Are you ill? Then follow the pattern James talks about here. I want our staff and deacons to be available to you that we would come and pray with you. But again, remember, this is your initiative. It won't always be me. It may be one of the Kevins or Jonathan or Russell who pays you a visit with a a deacon or two and prays with you about what you're going through. 
I think that's a way we can apply this text. Here we are in a time of deacon election. I realize that deacons aren't elders in the biblical sense, but I'd like to see our deacons more involved in this kind of ministry as well. Because indeed we do expect deacons to be like elders in the sense of being a testimony to the body of believers. Maybe two or three of them would would get together and go and and pray with their family members upon occasion. I'd also like to see after our services sometimes, sometimes we'll announce after services that on a certain given day in a certain room, there'll be a pastor and a deacon there. If there's a need in your life, go to that room. Again, private. No pomp and circumstance about it. Private. You can go to that room after the service and there'll be a pastor and a deacon or two in there. And you can tell them your need. Go there not for counseling, but for prayer. I think that's a way that we can minister to you as the body of Christ. If there's anybody in here this morning who does not know the God who can do miracles through prayer. I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage, what you're saying to us. That we would be a body of Christ given to prayer. Whether good or bad circumstances in life, whether trials or tribulation or times of rejoicing, that in either situation we would be quick to pray, to turn every need in our lives over to you. Father, I pray for those this morning who have burdens and trials and tribulation in their life, that even today they would carry those burdens before you. This week that they would bathe that matter in prayer. Father, for that one this morning who does not know the God who can do miracles through prayer. Who can bring redemption to a human life. That this morning they would come forward and give their hearts to Christ. For that one this morning who needs a church home that will pray for them. They need the benefit of a fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. That they too would come forward if you're leading them here. God help us to realize that when we pray and turn matters over to you. Leave those matters in your hands. Sometimes you answer those requests the way we want them answered. Sometimes you see fit to answer it a different way. But in both cases, you've heard and answered. So, increase our confidence in your sovereignty and in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.